Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. September 27, 2015. Episode number 82, Back in Time. And it is that time for another Beekeeper's Corner episode. Kevin England here, and I have another hour or so of beekeeping topics that cater to you, hopefully the backyard beekeeper or beekeeping enthusiasts, or if you're just somebody who's picked up the podcast and giving you a listen, welcome. Glad to have you. Got a little bit of everything for you on this show as I, a novice beekeeper, share my learnings and experience, my research rants and editorials, yes. Sometimes it's just about this guy sitting down and musing about the wonders of an insect, our beloved honeybees. In this episode, Tanging, Myth or Legend? The Quest for Knowledge on Essential Oils. Timing. If I could only go back in time and do it all over again. Can we control the clock? I'd like to think so. A YouTube channel recommendation to kick off the round table. And no, it's not mine. Life-saving honeycomb style grafting. A foul brood sniffing dog. Leave them alone. Frame wiring follow-up. A cold and cough remedy you can make with honey. And... Some insight on fall feeding. All that and more coming up in this episode, but first, the Local Hive Report. Local Hive Report for this episode. We'll start with the local yard. Last time we talked to you, three hives on the property were down to two. One of them was the top bar hive. It started with a late swarm, and we fed it a little bit before going on vacation, but unfortunately it never took off. We had a terrible dearth here during the summer, and the hive dwindled, and it's not functional, so we combined it with another hive, and we'll get that one started next year, hopefully earlier in the spring. The other two hives on the property, one of them is about seven boxes tall, heavy as could be, and just booming with bees. It's in good shape. It's been treated for mites, and looks like it's heading to a perfect place for winter. The other box is contracted down to two deeps been feeding this hive it looks fairly good it's starting to put on a little weight i think the reason the other hive is really heavy is that it's been picking on its neighbor but whatever the case this hive seems to be hanging in there and i am hopefully optimistic but always cautiously optimistic that this hive is in good shape going into the first frost turning our attention to the farm Two hives over there. One of them is the polystyrene box. That box has two deeps, two mediums, and seems to be doing pretty good. Been feeding it regularly since August, and it's getting some heft to it. Bees are extremely active this time, and for whatever reason, this week, maybe just this past week or the week before that, the forage in that area over by the farm has broken. I see a ton of dark orange pollen coming in. And I'm starting to see nectar being loaded in, or observing nectar coming in. I have not been digging in these hives, so I'm speculating on that. But uh, from reports around, 
after the meeting yesterday that we had for the Northwest and uh, Bob Kloss's report that his hives are starting to take on weight from fall forage. My speculation is, is that the goldenrod finally hit something over there where it's starting to yield some nectar. I've been walking around the farm over there and there has been nothing much to see. But even today when I stopped over to see how the bees were doing, I saw a goldenrod surrounding all the margins around the fields where I was and down in the lower field. So I think the bees finally have something to eat there. So much so that the second hive over there is pretty heavy and they are doing pretty well also. One thing I noticed is some of the feed that I put on that hive, they're not taking it. When they don't take feed from the top, it usually means they could find something in nature. The other hive over there is a nucleus hive. It's one nuke box sitting on top of a second nuke box. I'm hoping to get it to one full deep and giving it uh, to Bob Closto over winter in his nuke condo. He's doing a nuke condo. And he's also doing a single deep condo. So we were talking about that yesterday. And I think that hive is in good shape. In my spirit of leave them alone, I have not been in any of my hives this week or last week or the week before that. I'm going to do my last fall manipulation next weekend where I'm going to go in, check the hives and button them down for winter. So we'll keep an eye on that for the next local hive report. But everything... Thus far, for the hives that are in operation, seem to be in a good place. We'll know a little bit better when we delve in, but uh, usually when they put on weight this time of year, that's a good sign that they're heading in a good direction. And I see a ton, 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 ton of stuff going on at the entrance for bees. Not robbing activities, but actual forage activities. So I think we're good to go on all the hives. That is the type of local hive report I want to keep running. Let's hope I'm as optimistic next week. So that being the case, let's head into the segment. But the first thing I want to do is just share some contact information because I'm going to tell you, go look at the show notes throughout the episode. If you have any questions to send me, you could send them to kevin at bkcorner.org. If you care to visit our website, it's www.bkcorner.org or .com, both work. As a typical tip to anybody who's new or those of you who forgot, you can go and look up each episode. And we tell you where the segments are from a time standpoint in each of the episodes. You can go back and listen to specific segments or roundtables. You can find them in the uh, running order so you don't have to dig around looking for them. We also have a YouTube channel. I've been terribly active posting things up there, but put a couple since our last uh, foray. Tim Schuler video up there. Also a state video that came from the 90s, but it's really cool. Go check those out. YouTube.com slash NWNJBA. That stands for Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association, of which I am a member. And last but not least, just one other little housekeeping thing. I put a new website up last winter with the anticipation I know how terrible my website is. I've always known that and aspire to put something new up, but it had a technical problem. I'm happy to report since I've last uh, recorded that I was able to clear the technical problem and get my audio files up there. 
and hopefully in the next short period, I don't know if that takes me to December or what, to find short, uh, I will be switching over to the new website, and I think you're really going to like the look and feel. And I'll also be able to post more information about the segments and stuff that I find. Uh, much like people post information on Facebook, I think I could use my blog that way. So really excited about that. I have a couple more technical things to get through and some switchovers, and eventually that'll mean the site that I have will come down in the DNS for the name. BK Corner will switch. But uh, we'll keep you posted before we do all those things. In the meantime, let's go to segment number one. Segment number one, clanging, banging, and tanging. I've been looking around for a while on the topic of tanging. The big question is, is it fallacy or is it a credible way to lure bees to a spot where they can be captured? It appears to be a good place to start to describe what this is for those that haven't heard of it. The concept of tanging is to bang on a device with a stick or instrument in a rhythmic way and the sound, vibration, or some other dynamic draw bees in the air down to your proximity. Many articles comment that this is just lore, not practical as a means to draw down a swarm. I've even found a research article in the Journal of Apiculture Research that determined by experimentation that tanging does not work. Their conclusion is there is no evidence that found that tanging causes a flying swarm to settle. So it's BS, right? It doesn't work. Just old wives' tale told by old men. You know, not so fast. I've heard so many times from seasoned beekeepers in my area that they have successfully tanged down swarms. In fact, Stan Wasatowski from episode 71 assures me that tanging works and he's used it a number of times. Again, eh, beekeepers like to tell stories. In Stan's recount, I have a secret, secret weapon to know he's truthful, and that would be Fran Wazatowski. Fran has recounted to me hearing a banging sound outside and watching out the window of her kitchen as Stan tangs down bees out of a tree in the yard. She's got no impetus to tell me tales, and she's witnessed Stan's prowess at tanging on a good number of occasions. Bless you, Sharon. That little squeak you heard in the background was Sharon sneezing from upstairs. She's got herself a little bit of a cold, and she's having some tea with honey right now to make herself feel a little better. History has, it seems, demonstrated that mankind has known about this phenomena of tanging for a long time, I've seen a reference called out on a number of occasions in the beekeeping community of a book that has an engraving of a man holding a big stick and an object while standing over a skep. In the engraving, a swarm can be seen as a beekeeper is hitting what appears to be a metal pan or some sort of drum. The date of this Amsterdam publication appears to be 1669. If you follow this a little deeper, you hear some commentary about what's going on, especially in this historical footnote. What I'm referencing is the uh, engraving. It is said that perhaps beekeepers in olden times were signaling to others nearby that he, she is aware of a swarm issuing, and perhaps the signal is to let neighbors know that they should step off. This is my swarm, or I know one of my hives is swarming, and now you do too. So I said a moment ago the person was banging a object and maybe it was 
a drum. It serves as a good segue to talk about drumming. One could forgive someone for referring to tanging as drumming. Drumming in beekeeping actually conjures up a different connotation. Drumming in beekeeping is a technique that is used to to move bees away from an area, not draw them closer. But you didn't know about this one either. Drumming is used to clear bees out so you can harvest honey. There's a cool video on YouTube of a young lady drumming on the sides of a wary box loaded with honeycomb. The video, entitled Drumming Bees Out of a Wary-Style Box Hive, go figure, demonstrates how they remove bees in their treatment-free Hawaiian honeybees, and I'll provide a link to that. She's literally sitting right there, tapping on the side of the hive and drumming the bees out from the comb. Pretty cool video to watch. In places outside of the United States, a number of vessels were or are still in use to contain bees, such as clay tubes, gum hives, and the like. It's not uncommon to hear of beekeepers drumming those vessels to move bees out of these containers, something that I don't think I've ever seen a beekeeper do in the United States, other than that video of a person in Hawaii. So let me come back to tanging. What do I personally know about it? Not so much, it appears. I tried this twice this summer without success. I did speak to Stan and asked him to describe it. And I also spoke with Charlie Ilsley, who also vouches that he's seen it used with success. Both tell me that there is a touch that you need. The amount of sound, the cadence of the strike against the items that you are striking, and the like. I had a swarm in a tree this summer, and I knew that it was somewhat new there. Maybe just even hours before I discovered it. I seem to recall I probably spoke about it on the episode sometime around July. Well, that afternoon I figured I'd have a go at trying to tang them down. It was always something in the back of my mind, as they were too high for me to get to in any other way. I tried tanging down with a hive tool against a smoker. This is what Stan used days earlier from the time that I tried to tang down a swarm in his yard, but me personally, I didn't have any luck. I should state that one of the fundamentals of tanging is that you tang down swarms that are in the air, not ones that have assembled in a tree, but honestly, what did I have to lose, so I was going to give it a try. I tanged against that smoker for around 20 minutes before I took a break, and after a little break, I went inside the kitchen and pulled out a pot lid and returned it to try again with no success. It so happens that the next day I went back out to check on that swarm, and one of my other hives was literally emerging a swarm on hive pad number one. Dismayed at the prospect of having one swarm already hanging in a tree, and seeing another one emerging, but excited that this thing was in the air. So I tried it again. The pot lid and the wooden spoon that I was using were still out there in the yard from the day before. So I tried banging, 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 but what happened is the queen flew up. I'm assuming it was a queen. The mass flew up to another tree on the other side of my apiary and collected there, and none of them came down to some close area. 
Thinking I was having a really bad day, here I have one swarm hanging in a tree over to my right and another swarm just issued to a tree over my left. I tried other methods. I was banging on a metal pipe against a metal chair in the yard and trying a bunch of different things. And in both instances, I just had no luck whatsoever. So that brings me to the question I want to learn about the process. And that is, what is the technique for tanging? Do you tap or bang? Do you do it quickly or slow but steady? Does the quote-unquote mallet and pot substrate lid matter? Or does it just have to be a stick and a metal object? My quest in time is to seek out those who have practical experience and successful uh, they've done this and it actually worked for them. So I went back to Stan subsequently and Charlie and asked him about it. And we joked about finding some sort of song that I could sing in the future that would stick in my head that would give me the cadence of how often to strike. And it sounds a little something like this. (laughs) So that's what I have in my mind. If this happens again, I'm going to do that, right? In the end, I didn't have any success, but I'm happy to report that nature brought my bees back as that was just a practice swarm that I saw issue and not the real thing that day. Perhaps that's why I couldn't hang them down, I can't say. So Kevin moment. I got lucky on that being a practice swarm. And for those that don't know this concept, sometimes bees get swarmy and issue a swarm, but the queen doesn't go with them and they end up returning to the hive. Many times, practice swarms evolve into real swarms in time. But in this case, I think the problems of the hive centered on heat. As it was a real hot stretch through the winter and the bees were bearding off the bottom board and around the front of the hive. Recognizing the colony differences, or difficulties I should say, I added two boxes on top of the hive to alleviate any possible swarming. And I pulled out one of my quilt boxes on the top with no insulation in it, right? Because I was trying to get heat to exit this quilt box. And I put it on there and let it ventilate out of the top of the hive. I've spoke about the Robo Bushkill ventilation boxes I built on the podcast before. That's the type of quilt box I'm talking about. Mostly I use them for insulating the tops of a hive with the insulation in it. In wintertime, but in this case, I was looking for more ventilation in the heat of the summertime. And I think it did the trick as the hive didn't swarm any further. End of Kevin moment. So tanging, I'm still game to give it a try. I personally believe it works, and it's a technique that I lack. One of these days, I'll become a bee whisperer, and hopefully it'll be a day when I have a camera at the ready. You know, perhaps I need to call Fran over next summer and ask her to sit in the window for a while. Take a look at our show notes for a few links on the topic, and especially the ones that I called out. Segment number two, I call this one Essentially Essential Oils. There's a topic on the beekeeping podcast and and also in my work with the Beekeepers Association that continually comes up, and I'm not adverse to talking about it, but I also feel like there's a long stretch to having any sense or semblance of an understanding of this topic. 
Essential oils is something that beekeepers can identify with, but many have no practical experience, yours truly included, except for some anecdotal stuff here and there, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. But I thought it would be interesting to cover this topic a little bit and start on a methodology to try and figure out what this is for the long run. So let me go ahead and jump right in here. Essential oils have been long considered for bees and are actively available in commercial products and recipes on the internet. Why would we want to use them? Well, one of the things to start with is they have an organic connotation to them. They're derived from nature and we have an affinity as humans to plant-based remedies for ailments and problems. And as beekeepers, we want more soft, natural methods to control our mites or combat nosema or to make masking scents that we're going to use in the hive. We want to use them for mold inhibitors in our sugar solutions. We want to use them in our swarm traps to lure in bees through some sort of queen smell. And we want to use them for feeding stimulation these are some common ways that right off the bat beekeepers can think about ways that they would potentially introduce essential oils into beekeeping practices. What we don't want is mega chemical company doing this for us and giving us the ready supply of materials for our internet age. We can do this on our own is our belief. As soon as we try to figure it out, though, the notion of wanting to do this is in direct conflict with the notion of how to do this. If we look into it, we find that there are a lot of prevailing thoughts on the topic, and it gets complicated in a hurry. I have to count myself as one of those who are not really sure whether this has a place in beekeeping. I think it does, but I have no idea how to go about it. And believe me, I've tried on a number of occasions to dive right in. What I do know about this is that you have to be careful. Think about thymol, one of the products we all kind of know if we've been around beekeeping a little while. And we want to put that in a product. Three drops or ten. It makes a significant difference. Ten could completely gas your bees. I'm making that up. I don't know that to be true, but as an example. But I guess what? You don't know either. <laughs> Unless you're a chemist. So what I'm going to suggest here is over time, over the next couple of episodes, if I can keep myself heading down the right path, I'm going to research this area. I'm going to bring information about it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to ask you to help me with this later on. And perhaps together we can string together a comprehensive and or at least a safe place to go and take a look at this topic in a little, with a little more understanding I feel a little bit like the Dunning-Kruger effect that I've spoken about before. If you think you're an expert of something, but you're not, and you're talking to an expert, and you, the expert tells you you're wrong, you'll be completely blissfully unaware of that fact. I know nothing uh, concrete whatsoever other than my common sense about essential oils, but I'm willing to start looking at things and collecting facts and, and getting information. And with your help, and with the uh, right amount of effort, perhaps we can put together something that everybody can benefit from. So that's where we're going to go. 
So if I start thinking about it, I have a notion of where I want to start, and it has to do with the human aspect of essential oils. It gives us a good understanding of why we humans might think this is a good idea for peas. I had this revolution driving home from work the other day, which got me on this topic. Scents of plant-based materials have been used for centuries. Plant-based smells evoke certain responses in humans. You could probably go to some place with an immediate reaction if you think about the last time you smelled incense burning or conjure up cinnamon steeping in a pot on the stove. Where did you last experience that? There are also certain alchemies that we ingest that we have perceived medical or psychological impressions on us. If we drink ginger ale or eat some ginger for an upset stomach, menthol tea to clear a runny nose, or even mint-flavored toothpaste that gives you fresh minty breath. We put essential oils in baths, in inhalations. We mix oils in our lotions. We diffuse them into the air via little green trees in our cars. There are literally hundreds of uses for products that we come into contact with daily that we personally have our fundamental impressions of these products and what they do for us. Sometimes we know exactly what to do with some of these products, and other times we have no clue what to do with it. If I told you patchouli oil, what would you do with that? Cinnamon, however can be used as a stimulant tonic to increase metabolic activity. I know that because I read it on a website. (laughs) Maybe or maybe your reaction is sure, whatever. But if I said to you, the scent would make a nice blend to diffuse to make a sensual atmosphere to energize a sluggish mind, you might wonder what happened to Kevin I used to know. So cinnamon has its uses, but you have to stretch your imagination for what it can be used for. And that's where you go on the internet and you start seeing people talk about all these things and you just can't make the connection. So your mileage may vary on the claims on what these things can and cannot do, but steeped cinnamon makes a house smell good. So yeah, let's use it. That's what I have to say. So now we have an idea in mind that we have some familiarity with these things, but how do we use them in beekeeping? Going back to my car freshener idea, the little green tree, the product comes in a plastic sleeve and you're supposed to open it, but only a little bit. Otherwise, whoa, what a smell. It overpowers you and that wonderful car air freshener becomes repugnant. If you ever sat in a car with one of those things fully unleashed, you have to open the windows. They are really potent. I don't know if that's a universal concept globally. So if you're outside of the United States and you've never heard of the little green tree, it's an air freshener that you hang from the window in your car. Google or bang it, you'll see what we're talking about. The fact is humans have to be concerned about the products that you could potentially use in the essential oil space, especially when they are in such a potent form. Essential oils can cause irritation to your breathing and skin, skin reactions in the form of allergies. They even could increase the sensitivity to sunlight in human beings for some of the products that you get get from the marketplace. So how are we to tell in our quest How much is right, two drops or ten drops, to my thymol analogy? 
Most sales of essential oils would come with guides and instructions, and some of them are just a bottle of stuff. There's a percentage insight that can be used for a framework to get a formula to mix for making an oil to a certain concentration. So let's assume we'll start with one fluid ounce to make a dilution. In other words, we're not going to use the straight product out of the dropper, but we're going to cut it for our purposes so we don't have the car freshener repugnant response. By the way, not too long ago, I bought a small bottle of mint and I put a drop in my coffee. And one of the more popular things this time of year is to buy some of those essential oils that have a pumpkin smell and you put a drop in your coffee. Well, if one is good, two is better. And then you go to three and maybe four, and then you take that first sip and it burns your throat all the way down, especially if you put mint in your stuff. So be really, really careful with these. So what percentages do you mix? Well, sometimes the instructions come and say, mix them to a certain percentage, 1%, 2%, 10%. How do you come up with this notion? So I found a guide on the internet about making massage oil. And it starts with coconut oil as a base. To one fluid ounce of coconut oil, I would add six drops of my essential oil to get a 1% mixture. Let's pretend I'm making a vanilla-flavored massage oil. Now, I'm not a little weird, but this just turned up as an example. So, so go with it, folks. <laughs> yeah, it's like a Kevin moment. I bet in your wildest dreams you didn't guess when you started this podcast that you'd hear a beekeeper telling you how to make massage oil, did you? <laughs> End of Kevin moment. To get a 2% mixture, use 12 drops. So six drops is 1%. Double that, 2%. That's good. That means it's a standard formula. 2.5%, 15 drops. 5% mixture for your massage oil is 30 drops. If 30 drops gives you 5%, you can guess that 60 drops will give you 10%. Yes, that's correct. That's good. Now, this is from one guide I'm referencing, and you can see the scale of drops is going up linearly. But my guess is there might be products where the ratio might not work. I'm not a toxicologist. I only played one on TV. The good news is these places are sourced from distribution points. Most people have like essential oil businesses where they know a lot of these products. And I suspect enough beekeepers over time have tried these routes that they probably can tell you what you should use for whatever it is you're trying to do. At least they could tell you common ways to use some of these products. So if you think about it, we have a basic introduction of a percentage ratio and a simple reference for mixing a dilution to use essential oils to start our conversation. But how does this relate to beekeeping? Let's turn the corner and discuss a few things further. What oils are used in beekeeping? Thymol for mites and other reasons. Lemongrass for hive lures. Mints of different varieties. Spearmint, peppermint, wintergreen. These have, by the way, antiseptic qualities. Tea tree oil. Anise. There's some of the more esoteric ones that most people wouldn't have any clue. I mentioned patchouli oil. Mountain mint. 
the essences of citrus, orange, lime, lemon, and such. And then you could even branch out and go further with rosemary or tea. Different people mixing tea concoctions, green teas, black teas, Tulsi teas. A friend of mine came from India and brought me Tulsi tea, which was something I discovered when I was over there two years ago. And when they came over, they're working for me right now. They're here on a run through the end of the year, and they brought me some of this tea. If you read the box, it's amazing what they tell you this tea does for a human being. I don't know if you'd get away with the claims, homeopathic or not, in the United States, but it calms you down, it gives you energy, it does all these things. And you could pick up any book somewhere, read about different products and reactions to humans. Well, there are people who think and understand and have done research to say these products do certain things for bees. As it is, I just heard something recently on the Kiwi Mana Buzz podcast where Gary, Gary's guest talked about concoctions of mixing apple juice as part of the feed in with honey or whatever products he was talking about. So there are people who literally in this day are doing these type of concoctions. So the basic premise of some of these things is that they're plant-based and like nutrition for humans, they provide nutrients, minerals, other advantage, and will supplement our bees like a multivitamin providing human what they're missing or lacking in their normal diet. So you're saving Kevin There's more to it than that. It's about mic control and whatever. Be patient. What I want to talk about real quick before I go into mic control is about delivery. So I talked about mixing something in a coconut oil. Sometimes you mix it with water and you use an emulsifier so the product mixes in easily with sugar syrup and you feed it directly to the bees. Though essential oils can also be mixed in a grease patty. Grease being something akin to like Crisco that you would make Crisco shortening. Perhaps they are vaporized like when we do an application of something like Fisher's Bee Quick to a fume board to move bees down for collecting honey. An all natural product of essential oils. For all the delivery methods, of course, the holy grail in some beekeepers' minds is essential oils for mite control. When a Varroa mite contacts essential oils such as wintergreen, patchouli, tea tree oil, et al., mixed into oil or grease, they are killed on contact usually within a few minutes. When Varroa mites feed on larvae that contain essential oils, their reproduction is interrupted. If the oil is strong enough, the females are unable to lay eggs. If the oils are in lower concentration, eggs are laid, but development of immature mites is delayed. Young mites do not reach maturity before the bees emerge from the cell. Consequently, the immature mite dies. Hmm... Now we're going somewhere. So what are we waiting for? Why don't we just spike sugar solution with this stuff and get it over with? Voila, dead mites on the bottom board. Unfortunately, not so fast. We've talked in the past about mints being mild antiseptics. In the context of a beehive, how do we know that we're not messing up 
the natural flora and fauna of the hive environment by introducing things that are not supposed to be there unless the bees bring them in. Can we make the bees sick? Does it even express out in the bee to the mite? Just because you fed it doesn't mean it's actually going to get through the mite when the mite's sucking on the bee. And if the mite's sucking on the bee, isn't the bee already damaged? How much should it be fed? If it should be fed at all. Will the mites eventually become immune or figure out some adjustment to this? There's so many questions and more questions than answers when it comes to this. And when CCD came to down, a lot of people said, hmm, maybe we should look at this. And people like me who say, well, I have mice in my truck and I can't stand the fact that they're chewing on the wires and they live in the air cabin. So I bought essential oil mint and I put it on the air filter because I know the mites won't come into the truck if they smell that mint. Mites. Mice, not mites. Then there's the farthest extreme where natural beekeepers might profess how wonderful it is that we're using natural products in the hive instead of synthetic chemicals made by mega chemical company. But purists would balk at the notion that if it is not brought in by the bees, then it does not belong there. Then you have the scientists and the researchers in the background who go, ho, 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 hold on a minute here. And even the entrepreneurs, they balk at the notion that you could take ready-made products from the grocery store or local health food establishment and assemble them in some concoction and it will solve our ills. Or even if so, how do you monetize it to be a commercial product that could be ordered from a bee catalog? Let's say that someone came up with this magic formula and you could reverse engineer it. Then there would be no stability in the market because everybody could make it. You couldn't put a patent on it. I learned that by Shark Tank, by the way. You ever watch Shark Tank? They always say that. Your product's not unique. Somebody else could do this. It's like once every episode they try to teach you that business lesson. So it's no surprise to me that there isn't some big, great, wonderful, organized effort to go do this. But yet, people still ask me. You might still be wondering. Beekeepers still talk about this at the association. Is there anything that can work? The story about honeybee healthy and drenching the bees was one of the things that keeps this story going. I hear this all the time. In fact, last week somebody came to me and said, you know, somebody did this thing where they poured this on the bees by accident. And when they went to go clean it up, the bees recovered and did whatever. Well, honeybee healthy is some concoction which bucks the trend that I just talked about a second ago. It's some formula which is expensive to buy, but nobody could figure out what's in it. People have suspicions about it. I actually read today something about what's in it, yet nobody really knows what's in there, so they're able to monetize it. Good for them. By the way, I've given the advice on this podcast in the past when we've talked about this is I didn't have an answer. Just go buy that product. (laughs) But this time I want to go a little bit further. And I need your help. So working together would yield far more diverse and complete results than if I tried to take this on by myself. And believe me, in the background over the last couple of years since this first got asked to me, I've been looking for various resources. And I know a bunch of them out there, but from a crowdsource standpoint, I bet you guys, our listeners, 
could probably find more on this topic in one week that I would find in a year poking around. So here's your mission should you choose to accept it. Dun, 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 dun. Honey Bee Sweet, Bee Source, Michael Bush, Treatment-Free Areas, Essential Oil Recipes on Wikipedia. These resources exist. I've seen them. So my ask is, in addition to these things, maybe I didn't find everything there. Maybe I didn't know where to look. What other ones are out there? I'm looking for a few things. What oil or products, what substances are people using and for what purpose? How are they mixing them? Is there a recipe? More importantly, if they're using these things, how did it turn out? So in the next follow-up to this, I have a recipe for somebody who made thymol, thymol, I never know how to say that, treatments in a hive. I'll share that with you in my next episode. I have that queued up. Well, what I don't know is, how does it work? How did it turn out? More extensive results would be higher in the ranking for me. If somebody could say, I've been using this for X number of years, and I've had these results with it, and some corroboration that it's actually impacting the operation would be very interesting to me. See, you see these things where people say they do this stuff, and they say, well, my bees look better. And I think it worked. And I did that, but I also did a, you know, mite away quick strips, and I had a lot of dead mites, so it must have helped. <laughs> How do you tell? You know, there has to be some sort of benefits proven out by measure. That I think it would be important to, to take somebody's recipe and know whether you could trust it or whether it was snake oil. And by the way, I'm not casting aspersions at anybody's practices. I just would like to know, before I go and adopt them myself, that they had a head start in this and had reasonable success and why. So I'm interested to see what you find. If you care to poke around, I promise to collect and collate the shares and bring back pointers to the places that are the most interesting as discovered. My email is kevin at bkcorner. Just a simple email with a link what you found, what I should look for, and why you think it's a good start. Anything goes, folks. I, I know people are using these for all kinds of products. Um, even if you find an oil that you think is used for a specific thing, I'd be interested in hearing that too because I know what people use time oil for and some of these other products that I mentioned, but sometimes I don't know. So cinnamon is supposed to make you what? No, I didn't know that. So I'll be bringing this topic back now and again as I amass information, but I wanted to leave with at least one practical tip for this episode, and it centers on using anise oils for fall feeding. So anise extract or oils. Remember a few episodes we shared a tip from Tom Seeley about anise being one of the great attractant available to beekeepers for bees. And in this premise, he was talking about bee lining. When he put a couple drops, the bees found him in a field. This especially worked when there was a dearth. But yet, there was still something about that intractant that it was one of the better ones to be used. So here's the tip. Another known use for it is late fall feeding. Sometimes beekeepers run into problems of enticing girls to take sugar solutions down into the hive. 
they put it on the top or they put it somewhere and the bees, for whatever reason, just don't find it. Maybe they're down in the box doing whatever they're doing and they never come upstairs to find a nectar source. That's a reasonable assumption. So if you put a drop or two in your solution, it will draw them up to your feeder and you will likely find a clean feeder in the morning. Now, one caveat about this, I guess it goes with the theme about using these things. Put too much and you'll have the whole neighborhood inside the hive <laughs> attracted to it. So start with a drop or two and don't go any further than that. And if you're having trouble getting the girls to take your stuff down, more likely it's stuff like the liquid is too cold and they won't drink it because it's had a cold night or cool day and you're in the shade, something like that. But every once in a while, they just flat don't, flat don't find it. And if you put a couple drops, maybe that will make the difference. So there you go. Your first practical tip for an essential oil. So I've been really scared about this topic for a long, long time. And I figured I'm going to jump in with both feet. Every once in a while, I'm just going to keep looking and bringing back information. And eventually, the collection of the body of evidence will serve to be some sort of work related to what we can teach people about essential oils. And I'm proud to have you along for the journey. Segment number three, call this one timing an impact for varroa and feeding. Carly Tooth was our featured speaker yesterday at the Northwest Association meeting. One of the themes in his presentation shared with the audience was about the timing of things. The timing of when to feed, the timing of applying treatments, the timing of when to combine hives for overwintering, the timing for, well, just fill in the blank. Suffice it to say, just about anything that he talked about had some sort of timing aspect to it. For the beginning of this segment, I want to focus the microscope on just one aspect of my treatments. It's a question that often comes up about this topic timing this time of year so here goes the exchange beekeeper to kevin yeah you know it's been a busy summer and i didn't get to treat my mites kevin in his mind if your hives are mite infested they're dead already beekeeper to kevin i don't want my bees to die so what treatment can i put on now in late september that will get them through Kevin in his mind. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> no, the true Kevin says, Kevin to beekeeper, well, first thing, check your threshold by doing an alcohol wash. Then based on the threshold and your preference, consider the product that works for you. But know that you are likely in trouble. Let's talk about your option and dot, dot, dot. The conversation continues. I'm not pessimistic about it, but as a person who typically gives advice ad nauseum to people about check your mites in July and August and have been saying that routinely for years. When someone comes to me in late September and I know they've sat in an audience, I, I can't help if you're not going to take the action as a bee haver to become a beekeeper and do these things. So consider yourself on the situation where you're playing the scenario that you're treatment free, <laughs> right? 
you've become a treatment-free beekeeper. But some of these people actually do attempt to do treatments at the end, and maybe they have some mild success. But Tim Schuler comes back in the spring after they complain to him about their bees dying and they just don't understand it. And, you know, fact of the matter is it's not that they don't know how to apply treatments. They don't know how to do thresholds. It's timing. Timing is the key here to success. So even with that in mind, it's still relevant right now. Timing, right? So here's a common wisdom to keep in mind for the rest of the year and for next year if you didn't follow the advice of treat your bees in July and August in your area if it necessitated it or if you weren't going the treatment-free route. Timing of treatments. Colonies infested with varroa mites in August, September, and October are in trouble. Treatments late in the season will kill mites, but it is too late in the season to allow rearing of new, uninfested brood which would enhance survival of the colony. Even if all varroa mites are killed after heavy infestations, the bees may still die from acute bee paralysis virus, cashmere virus, or other viruses transmitted earlier by the varroa mites. I will admit that that last part that I just read wasn't mine. The University of West Virginia wrote that statement to tell beekeepers that if they don't treat their mites and they start a course of treatments too late, that they're doomed. <laughs> no, they didn't say that. But they did say that even if you did treat or didn't treat, your, your bees are in trouble, right? That's pretty much what they're saying. And they're hearkening back to timing. So now let's take the beekeeper who did follow the guidance. July, August, they treated. And they think they're done. Bees are not out of the woods yet, even if they have been treated. Strong, healthy colonies, free of mites in early September, but later are overwhelmed by an influx of lost bees and mites from dying feral colonies, from untreated neighborhood colonies, have to be assessed and cared for if the thresholds call for it. Late season treatments are now part of the common wisdom of beekeeping in New Jersey, at least. That, too, comes from that same West Virginia, but I paraphrased it, to take into account what the state apiarist has said in New Jersey. He is encouraging people, if you've watched the presentation that's up on our YouTube channel, that you have to check in in late September. Because of other conditions and the number of bees that are in your vicinity, your neighbor's bees could be polluting yours even when you thought you were thumbs up and ready to go to that first frost. That's a not very happy feeling, but that's just the way it goes. So there were a lot of discussions yesterday about what treatments are right. It's like an NFL playbook for the fall. The beekeeper standing at the box and understanding the site right in front of them will have the input needed to make the right decisions. You need to know your opponent and be able to read the field. Treatments may or may not be necessary and crucial. And only you standing there looking at the box, knowing what's going on, can make the right call. And the fact of the matter is you're looking at one box, you could take a step to the left or right and look at another box, and it could be in a completely different situation. I'm sitting behind a microphone in New Jersey somewhere and people are calling and asking me what they should do for their spring treatments. 
or they walk up to me in a meeting. I drove an hour and something to the meeting yesterday. In my trip up to the meeting place, which is still in our sending district for the Beekeepers Association that I'm the president of, I drove through territories that had great forage, no forage, little forage, some forage, abundant beyond belief, I am so envious forage. How can I tell you what to do with your bees and what you have going on? I have no idea how many people are in your neighborhood and how many bees, that type of thing, right? So the the common wisdom is do your alcohol washes, check, check your mite thresholds, and if they say to treat, treat. And then you have to pick the right product for your situation. And there you should get a semblance. We've gone through this on the podcast of which product is right for you. And you have to take into factor how many bees you have in the box, how many boxes you have on the stack, uh, what time of year it is from a temperature standpoint. And there's a lot of options out there. So hopefully you're starting to get this sense at least that treatment is a condition of timing Now let's talk about feeding, which is also a condition of timing. Kevin moment, by the way. If there's anything I've learned this year is that timing is a key input to the formula. I've been centered on my treatments and feeding and whatever, just trying to get that situation formula right for my own yard and my bees. And what I figured out this year is it's not just about doing treatments and doing feeding and whatever, but the right timing and the right approach to it. And this, too, was discussed on several occasions from our meeting yesterday. But I had that light bulb moment through the middle of the presentation. End of Kevin moment. In a perfect world, we would overwinter on our food stores from the previous season. But if that's not the case, and if your area is devoid of the stores to keep things going all year long without intervention, then a feeding plan also has to be put into your program and predicated on timing. Spring flow is over. What about the notion of keeping the colony from contracting because they have nothing to eat by providing supplemental feeding to just keep the queen in operation? I'm not talking about gallons of liquid on top. Just enough to keep the colony up. If the colony doesn't dwindle down to nothing in the June, July, August time frame when we're in a dearth in New Jersey, maybe the mites don't overramp it. Carly talked a little bit about that yesterday. From a timing vantage, is it one part water to one part sugar, the spring type mix, or is it the full mix of two parts sugars to one part water for the solution that you would feed so you don't have moisture problems? Is it time to dump in gallons of liquid or feed them just enough to keep the workers fed if you're doing sugar solutions? At the end of the season, when you get cold nights and cooler days, When do you switch from liquids to raw sugar or fondant? And if you had extra honey that you reserved, when do you scratch the cappings across the frame and set them across the top of the hive for them to pull it down? It's about timing. If your area is devoid of pollen sources, when do you put a supplemental pollen patty on? It's about timing. Part of the science of beekeeping is timing becomes something where you're constantly evaluating conditions and making inputs to your situation. Kevin Moment. Yes, another one. There's this notion of being a bee-haver versus a beekeeper. I would add one other type of bee management label, and that's a bee-meddler. 
I've been called and at various times considered myself all three of these things. I would love to be that all-knowing, omniscient person who has it all figured out, and I bet you would too. All of my life, I felt if you wanted something bad enough and found a passion in in excelling, you would be successful. Now, I don't think I could fly a fighter jet on that logic, but as bad and as good as things have been sometimes for beekeeping, I do believe that time and experience will provide a zen zone for those of us who are patient enough to stick with it and revel in the wonder of the bees. Maybe I should have played some harps to go along with that Kevin moment. End of Kevin moment. So timing, as is many things in life, is important in beekeeping. My 2015 revelation. Listening, learning, watching, observing. For clues and patterns and simply experience and enlightenment, that's how you find your rhythm. Pay attention to your results. Keep adjusting on your program. Listen to your elders. And perhaps a bit of luck and you too can figure it all out. So I hope if you're sitting here struggling trying to figure out what you're supposed to do to get yourself to the end of the season. Or if you're in an opposite season and you're trying to figure out the timing to get yourself started for spring, which is coming around the corner, you have a good sense of timing. That's all I can wish for you. I come to the end of the prepared segments that I had for this episode. Now what we're going to do is go to the back of the book. I call these the roundtable segments. First one I'll start with, Cody's Lab YouTube, Science Bees and More. You can find this on YouTube at youtube.com slash user slash the Cody Reader, C-O-D-Y-R-E-E-D-E-R, and I'll have this in the show notes. Why do I find this interesting? Well, first off, when I started looking at some of these videos that I found, Cody is in a different place and time than New Jersey. I think if I have it right, he's in Utah. But I found this the other day, and I didn't take very good notes on it. So if I have the wrong location, sorry. But the point that I wanted to make is that Cody's in a different place than I am in New Jersey. And therefore, if you have a different climate than we have... And I'm always talking about that. Uh, Maybe this is more akin to yours and you can go check it out. What I also find appealing is that there's 99 videos out there. And it was last updated August 19th, 2015. So not so long ago. And it has a premise that it follows his life in beekeeping. Every time Cody goes out to his hives, he's taking a camera with him. Starts off year of beekeeping episode one. Number two is building new hives. Three is box style hive. Four is winter loss. Five is first full impressions and so on. So I know a lot of my listeners have gone through and listened through the catalog of the, the podcast. And this would be a great place to go and see life through Cody's eyes. Now, if I watch a couple of these videos, they're cool. They're good. Take them for what they're worth. And I have this little pet peeve lately of people who have just been sending ridiculous notes. There was a video I shot about fall management probably several years ago. It was only my second year of beekeeping, and some guy called me out for something I said on the video. And I responded back to him that I was a novice beekeeper, never 
implied that I was some sort of expert, and his commentary was he was disappointed in the quality of the videos that we were putting out. And I said to him he could feel free to take a camera and go out when he's doing his inspections and try and talk to the camera and perform a proper inspection and see how that goes for him. I'd be happy to get the link to his YouTube channel. I don't usually get petulant about these things, but sometimes people just tweak me the right way and I go off. Um, I try not to let this stuff bother me, but, but aggravation of trolls on the web. I, I think I've made a couple comments here on the podcast, so I'll put this away. The point of this is go check out Cody's lab. It looks really cool and be appreciative of all the work that he's done to share his experiences with you. Very, very cool. And uh, it reminds me of the B vlog, which by the way, I've listened to that, uh, episode. I did not interview him and I feel terribly ashamed and, and, uh, embarrassed that I never got the chance to follow that up. Everybody who's listened to the podcast knows what kind of summer I have, but Gary picked him up and did an interview with uh, Bill and it sounded really good. So if you have a chance, the interview that I mistakenly didn't follow through with did get some airtime on the Kiwi Wanna Buzz and I encourage you to go take a look at it or a listen to it is what I should say. So anyway, uh, we'll have a note to the, or a link to the uh, YouTube channel that I'm discussing in our show notes. Round table number two, honeycomb style structure for grafting. Maybe just the premise of seeing something that said honeycomb in a news article drafted me to this, but I thought the technology was really, really cool. An interesting new technology from engineers at the University of Toronto. They have a honeycomb 2D protein mesh that's used for scaffolding to build some sort of mesh that would repair damaged hearts. I can't pretend to understand the science and whatever that went into the description, even though I read it over and over again. But the semblance of this is that engineers at the University of Toronto made assembling functional heart tissues as easy as fastening your shoes. What they're saying is they can take this mesh and overlay a heart tissue and it creates this honeycomb style structure that is a biocompatible scaffold that allows sheets of the beating heart cells to snap together just like Velcro. And the importance of this is it's not just for hearts. It can be done with different tissue styles. And they could potentially use this to do grafts for any type of organ within the patient. They could even do things where the scaffolding, which is absorbed in a month or two, can be used to include modern 3D bioprinting processes for medication in those substructures, and even biosensors. At the core of this is a special polymer called POMAC, P-O-M-A-C, is how it's spelled, to create a 2D mesh for the cells to grow around. It somewhat resembles a honeycomb in shape, except that the holes are not symmetrical, but rather wider in one direction than another. The interesting part is this provides a template that causes the cells to line up together and when stimulated with an electrical current, the hard muscle cells contract together, causing the flexible, the flexible polymer to bend. And so this polymer builds a grafting around the heart cells and when the heart cells get a zap, right, the electrical system that makes it contract, the polymer works with it in and out. There's an animated GIF 
on the webpage that I'll have a link to that shows the polymers contracting and, and expanding in a shot that they have to demonstrate how it works in conjunction with the grafting area. So the neat thing about this polymer is that the scaffold is used to allow the cells to assemble in the graft area and then eventually it biodegrades. And within a few months, it gradually breaks down and is absorbed by the body. As I said before, it's not limited to heart cells. It seems to indicate that other research could use the scaffold to build layered structures that imitate a variety of tissues from livers to lungs. So this is a work in progress, and it's pretty cool. Honeycomb-style structure used for grafting that is improving science. And we'll try and follow this and see where it takes us. Who knows, someday it could save your life. Very interesting technology. Roundtable number three. This one came by way of a Facebook post that I saw. It's about a dog that is certified to detect American fowl brood. There's a dog in Maryland. She's the only one that I know of, and that's what the article says, that has been trained to be a bee saver. It can sniff a bunch of different pallets of bees and determine if any of them have American fowl brood. It's pretty common these days to see dogs that can sniff out drugs and bombs and other things, but this is the first one that you know of that can smell American fowl brood. I'll provide a link to this article that I found. It's on upworthy.com. It has a video of Clinker, the dog. It indicates she can sniff out a thousand hives a day, and that would save beekeepers in that state a lot of money if they were able to keep American fowl brood from tra traveling around. And I think we desperately need more of these dogs to be trained. So I wonder who did it and how they did it and if it's possible to train others with this specialty. That's pretty cool. Roundtable number four. This one is a short editorial from me. I was thinking about something listening to my last podcast while driving to work the other day. I mentioned the term let them be a couple times in there and I think I'm polluting the notion. I want to give credit back to Jason Bruns who's written in, and Jason thanks for keep sending me emails, I'm reading them. Sorry I just haven't had a chance to circle back but I'm following you with very much interest. One of the things Jason has in mind, and it, and it actually came up in yesterday's meeting too, and post-discussion was about let them be, meaning put the hives in a yard, let them do what they're going to do, do some routine maintenance, but don't be in them, and if they survive, they survive, and if not, make new bees out of the survivors. In my last episode, I was talking about let them be. I was using the term, but not meaning what Jason was meaning. I was really referring to the concept of my not meddling. I don't want to be a bee meddler. Right now, I haven't been in my hives in a while because I want to let them be, but I shouldn't be using that term. I want to leave them alone. I don't want to be in there messing them up. The bees have them the way they want. If the bees are healthy and they're not varroa and they have a reasonable amount of food, I don't need to be in there. I don't need to check on the queen. Stan Wazitowski brought up a good point yesterday about package bees. People put package bees in a box, and they don't leave them alone. The first week, they have to open that and go look and find the queen. They're brand new beekeepers. They don't look 
uh, in an appropriate way because they're not, they don't have that touch yet with bees. And a lot of times, surprisingly, perhaps they alienate the queen by opening the hive and interrupting whatever she's doing. Perhaps they damage the queen. They put the frame down too hard. She falls off, something like that, or they bang her against something else. A certain percentage of failed colonies are not because you got bad packages, but because so many times a new beekeeper in their exuberance goes in and messes with the new queen who's trying to get settled in a new home and got interrupted and didn't take to the home or something happened. And maybe you damage a queen and they superseded her. So there's an aspect of just leaving your bees alone in the yard and planning your timing of when you're going to go in and do your things and otherwise leaving them be. And I'm going to switch my phrase. I'll have to put a quarter in the jar every time I say it. Let them be is Jason's philosophy, which is really cool philosophy. In my mind, it's leave them alone. <laughs> I'm going to try and stick to that. So uh, hopefully, Jason, you respect that correction because I, I like the let them be philosophy, and that's your philosophy, and I don't want to be uh, polluting the environment and the blogosphere and in the uh, podcast sphere and whatever. Anyway, just a short commentary there on that. Um, don't confuse the two, and I don't mean to confuse you. End of roundtable here. Roundtable number five is a follow-up to frame wiring. Why? In my last episode, I talked about not having an understanding of why people wire frames. So I did a little digging, not a lot, because I didn't have a ton of time. But the simple answer is that you wire frames so that when you spin them out in an extractor, they don't blow out the comb. Okay, that's easy enough. I'm not sure how this works, but commercial beekeepers could be using deeps for their honey instead of mediums. I typically find that if I have a medium frame with foundation and the pins in the side, that I can spin them out in a spinner. It's called an extractor, by the way, and not have problems with blowouts. I have, however, on occasion put full-size frames in and been a little bit exuberant on the manual spin and got them flying and have had them push out from the centrifugal force. Had I wired my frames, I would not have had that problem. Again, I don't know how much favor there is for people actually wiring their frames, but the frame jig that I was talking about was really cool. And the basic understanding is you wire your frames so they hold up in an extractor. Mystery solved. Before I declare victory, somebody will probably write in and go, you dope, you, write, you wire them for this reason and that reason and whatever. Okay, maybe I missed it, but my common belief until somebody tells me otherwise is it's about extracting. Okay, now I can move on to the next roundtable. Roundtable number six. Since cold and flu season is coming and I haven't covered a recipe in a long time, how about a recipe for homemade cough and cold syrup? This is from Kelly from Primarily Inspired. The ingredients are three tablespoons of raw honey, three tablespoons of unrefined coconut oil, melted, one lemon, juiced, one teaspoon of cinnamon. And the way you put this together is you put everything together until it's well mixed. As beekeepers, we probably know we shouldn't heat the honey because it destroys its nutritive qualities 
or if you're going to do it, at least do it at a low temperature. And then put it in a jar, close it off so it stays sealed and doesn't attract moisture. And when you have a cold or a cough, take one to two teaspoons three to five times a day, and it should straighten you right out. One word of caution, though. Remember that you're not supposed to give honey to an infant under one year old due to the risk of problems of them having not having the right bacteria or whatever in the gut to process the honey. So National Honey Board, um, you could find more information about that, but one-year-olds and under don't give them this stuff. I'll post a note to the recipe in the show links. Wait, strike that. I'll post a link to, <laughs> to the recipe in the show notes. Getting late, folks. Round table number seven. This one is about sugar ratios for building sugar solutions. It's the time of year where you commonly get this question. How do you make sugar solutions if you're going to feed the bees for a late top-off or emergency feeding? The typical MO in the springtime is to use a light solution, which is one-to-one. One part sugar to one part water, either by volume or weight. It doesn't matter that they are close enough for government work that either one works. In the fall, you want to switch to, where the common wisdom is, you want to switch to a two-to-one ratio. Two parts sugar, one part water. You should be using white cane sugar, nothing else. Using brown sugar or some other ones might be cooked or detrimental to the bees. So just... Straight up table sugar is what you use. Two to one ratio, more sugar, denser solution is less moisture for the bees to handle. There's something that was said yesterday in the conversation at our association meeting is you feed bees so that they can operate, not so they store sugar water solution in the comb. thought that was an interesting commentary that I've heard in the past, but not stated in a long time so it's interesting to always think about that the concept is is that when you have the fall nectar flow like we have goldenrod asters and other products out right now in new jersey is that you feed the bees to stimulate brood rearing and brood rearing results in bees going out to nature and bringing back nectar which is made into the honey and it's a far superior product over winter on okay fair enough that's a good point One of the things about fall syrup is it tends to be a little more like what they'd find this time of year. Spring syrup is more like the nectars when there's plenty of moisture and uh, plant growth in the spring. I think what you get out of plants in the fall, especially here in New Jersey since it hasn't rained in months, um, would be a little thicker so the bees might accept this as fall type nectar. The ratio commonly referred is that you need 60 to 80 pounds of honey, which is uh, about 12 pounds for a full frame, and one gallon of heavy syrup, the two-to-one kind, is set to make anywhere from 7 to 10 pounds worth of weight in colony reserves if they're storing that. I've heard both, but I think 7 is probably the more prevailing number. So if you need 60 to 80 pounds and your hive is light, you can figure out that one gallon of heavy syrup, two to one, is seven, eight pounds. How many would you need to get them 60 to 80? You can do the math that way. 
Anyway, just a short little public service announcement about switching your sugar syrup ratios this time of year. When I was feeding back in July, August, and into really early September because it was warm here, the timing indicated one-to-one ratio. I did that for two purposes. One, I still thought a light spring mix would make more sense to the bees about what they could find possibly. And the other one was they needed moisture. It was so dry in New Jersey that I thought more watery solution would be better for them. Recently, in my final topping off, I have switched to two to one. It's cold at night and it's cold in the morning. And I'm going to have to start thinking about doing something different because it's really cold at night and cool in the morning and only warms up to 70 degrees. That's not going to get that solution up to temperature where they're going to want to take it. It's a timing thing. Anyway, just, uh, again, public service announcement for some of you that are working on feeding for the top-off at the end of the year if you need to for emergency purposes. So looking at the clock, I have other topics, but I guess that should be the last one, and we'll save the rest for future episodes. I wanted to say I didn't get any listener mail in this episode. I have a couple in the queue, but a lot of topics to cover, so I'll circle back on them in the next episode. I do want to share a thank you to those of you who donate to the podcast. I don't believe I say enough about um, my appreciation for that. I don't actively solicit donations for the podcast. I have a simple donate button up on the front page, and people still find a way to send in some uh, donations. And I can assure you anything we get we use on behalf of producing the podcast. There's an interesting meeting coming up in October. It's October 31st, Halloween Day. New Jersey Beekeepers Association will be hosting a, a bee breeder coming up from the south to talk about how they put together packages, raise queens, and things like that. I think there's a lot of misconceptions. I've mentioned this in the past about what those operations do and how they work. It's very easy to throw a bee package producer under the bus, but there are people out there who do a really good job at this type of thing, and it'll be neat. The one that's coming up is uh, one that I know has a lot of integrity, and I'm really interested to hear about the backstory about what they do to produce bees for people all around the United States. In that notion, no offense to the people in the South, but what I'm hearing is that there's starting to be a clearance about the importation of queens coming in from Canada. Typically, it was rigmarole at the border to try and get a queen to come down, but they're starting to loosen the restrictions. And I have to think that if you could survive the winter in Canada, then New Jersey should be like coming down to Florida. That was the joke I made at the meeting yesterday. So I kind of think that's an interesting idea. And how about that? If we sourced our queens from the north, instead of the south would they do better in our climates here in new jersey where we do have occasionally some harsh winters like last year so that's an interesting notion interested to hear what's going to happen on the october 31st njba meeting keep your eye peeled to their website to be able to sign up and participate in that still seeking last minute a location to host that but um it might also be hosted in our sending district for the northwest branch And if so, I'm hoping my members will do their best to help out the state organization and be good hosts to the rest of our fellow beekeepers in New Jersey.
in real time. It's about uh, 8.30 at night. I'm going to go close this down, post it up to the Internet, and hopefully I'll be done in time to wander outside for the 9 o'clock showing of the full moon, which is supposed to be one of the super moons, and there's an eclipse tonight. Bad news is it's been cloudy as can be in New Jersey, and I was thinking about going for a walk, and maybe the clouds will break and give me a show tonight. That would be really cool. So with that, I guess it's time to close the episode down and get ready for the next one. I will share with you, as I always do, that like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well. Talk to you next time.